In the early 1900s, canaries were deployed in West Virginia's coal mines to detect methane gas, which would determine whether or not it was safe for coal miners to proceed. These canaries risked their lives for the coal mining industry in West Virginia. It was a dirty job, but these birds were up to the task. Ladies and gentlemen, on this day in the state capital of Charleston, West Virginia, we proudly honor these brave little creatures who played such an important role in West Virginia's coal mining industry. And now, here they are, fans, representing West Virginia's coal mining heroes, your professional baseball team, your Charleston Dirty Birds. Welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net Minor League Baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are going to talk today about the Charleston Dirty Birds, who play in the MLB Partner League, the South Atlantic League, the Sally League to friends, and who until 2019 were the West Virginia Power. I'll be speaking later in this episode with Caroline Bucas, who underwent her own name change recently, used to be Caroline Jetty. That's how many minor league baseball fans know her. And I'll be speaking with Jordan Bennett from the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum in Leadville, Colorado. And so that'll be fun. I'm super, super excited about this episode. First of all, because I finally get to catch up with Chuck Domino, who I have to tell you, Chuck, I didn't say this in our pre-recording here. You were referred to by none other than Brandiosa's Jason Klein as the godfather of minor league baseball branding. So for me, it's a it's a, a charge to, to get to finally speak to you. So thank you for coming on and talking with me about the Charleston Dirty Birds. Well, thank you. And that was very kind of, uh, of Jason. And we've worked together on a, a lot of projects over the years. Well, so Jason, in a, in a recent episode of the podcast, he actually rattled off a bunch of them all at once. Uh, teams that I've actually featured here on the podcast, like the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, the Richmond Flying Squirrels, the Akron Rubber Ducks are uh, going to be on a future episode here. So a lot of well-known brands that you have worked on with, with Jason Klein. This is not one of them, though. This is not a Brandios brand. This is, and I'm going to be speaking with Caroline Jetty later on in this episode about the work that she did on the, on the Dirty Birds uh, logo here. So uh, so that'll be fun, too, because that, that's the first time I'll, I'll get to speak with Caroline. And I know that she's done other work in minor league baseball as well. So, right. so again, it's, uh, it's a thrill to be speaking with you. And I'm very happy to be covering the, the Dirty Birds. They have been very active on social media. I've gotten to interact with them a bunch through Twitter. So certainly they have a, so a strong social media presence. But just by, by way of background, the team since 2005 was the West Virginia Power. When Major League Baseball's Vogon Destructor Fleet came through and reorganized <laughs> the minor leagues, the, uh, the West Virginia Power went from being in the Class A South Atlantic League to being in the Independent uh, Atlantic League. So similar, similarly named anyway, but uh, a different experience. And then during that process of the sort of the COVID year and the switch to an independent team, the team went from being the West Virginia Power to being the Charleston Dirty Birds. This Charleston Dirty Birds brand has been very well received, and I see it all over social media. So can you just tell me about the sort of the thinking that went into the changing the brand right around the same time that the team was changing leagues? Yeah, Paul, uh, when I got here, you know, actually, I would have changed it whether we changed leagues or not. When I got here, it was, became apparent to me uh, 
uh, even before I got here, actually, that the West Virginia Power was not a brand that was very powerful, if you uh, <laughs> if you will. Sure. Uh, in minor league baseball, I knew uh, of the West Virginia Power and I knew of the West Virginia Black Bears, and I can tell you, being in baseball for nearly 40 years at that point in time, 40 years now, but 38 years when I you know first started thinking about coming here, I couldn't tell you which one was which, which one was located in Charleston, West Virginia, which one was located in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I think it's very confusing. And I've always been a proponent of, of naming the team after a city, or after a, a, you know, a very distinctive community like Lehigh Valley, where you have three cities that really are so close that it makes up Lehigh Valley. Uh, naming a team after the state, I understand why people think it might be a good idea, uh, but it never really works. You know, that's why the California Angels aren't the California Angels anymore. Um, you know, you, it's not like you're going to get every corner of West Virginia to travel to Charleston because it's called the West Virginia power. We want to, we want to build community pride. We want to, to, to establish that this is this city's team, not, and if you can get the state to come to the capital of West Virginia to watch the, the team play, Hey, that's, that's gravy on top, but let's cultivate our own backyard first. So, the first decision was made. We're not going to be West Virginia. We're going to be Charleston. Okay. Now we're the power. The name of the stadium is Appalachian power park. It's the, the, you know, the local, uh, the regional power company. We are getting phone calls. We are getting letters. People are sending <laughs> us their, their bill. They're, they're sending us their payments for their electric bill. They're calling us to complain, you know, ab about their electric bill. So, no, all right, we don't want to be the power. It's confusing. Let's be something else. And I think an advantage of being from the outside, like I was in Hartford with the Yard Goats and Lehigh Valley and Akron and the Trash Pandas and Richmond, is you come in with a clean slate. You come in with something you think that would work for the masses. You're not already so kind of narrow-minded where you're only thinking oh, what what works in this town you know because all the locals normally will not come up with the crazy names they're gonna they're gonna say when we ran the when we uh when we said we we're gonna change the name here we got a lot of people said you should be the mountaineers i mean you gotta be kidding me the west virginia university is the mountaineers <laughs> and there's still people thought we should be the mountaineers so you know I don't go, you know, for the mundane, obviously, with the, sure. the list of those other names. So, um, so I'm looking at this from the perspective of what would be able to resonate with minor league baseball fans such as yourself throughout the entire country. Because let's face it, uh, online sales are, are a backbone of merchandise anymore. It wasn't like that 25 years ago. You would just sell what you had in your team store, but not now. So you have to resonate with the minor league baseball fans from around the country. So we need something to resonate with them. What is West Virginia known for that we can have fun with? Well, me being an outsider, coal industry immediately comes to mind. And then when I think of coal industry, okay, what are some terms associated with the coal industry? The canary in the coal mine. 
Well, there's already a team called the, uh, the, the Canaries, uh, I think up in, I forget what, Northwoods League, I think. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't want to be the Canaries. Not that I wanted to be the Canaries, but we couldn't be the Canaries. So what, what can we do play off of the Canary, just like the squirrel, like the flying squirrel? A squirrel isn't a tough, uh, a tough animal until you put it in a cape and you make it a superhero squirrel. And it becomes the flying squirrel with a with a superhero look. So I really kind of took the, the concept that we used in Richmond for the flying squirrels, and I wanted to have a tough looking bird. And then you start going down the road. Okay, the canary went down into the coal mine. He was a hero because if he, if he didn't come out, that means he saved lives. That was methane gas was down there. If he did came, come out, then he was great for the coal industry because he said it was okay for everybody to go down there and, and mine coal. Either way, he was a hero. So we're, let's make a, 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 a hero looking bird. And now when he comes out, he's got to have coal dust on him. And what's a, a canary with a bunch of coal dust? He's a dirty bird. So <laughs> it was really that simple of a process that my mind went through. And uh, I didn't run a contest uh, in this instance like I did in other places. I was convinced that Dirty Bird was, was going to be a good name. It was going to work. And we really didn't have enough time to do the contest because we wanted to unveil the new name before the end of the season, the first year, so we could kind of ride, kind of kind of ride the merchandise sales during the last homestand and then ride that right into the Christmas season. So it seems to have worked for us. Do I remember correctly that you unveiled the look in the second game of a doubleheader, yeah, that that made it even more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the players didn't even know what the uniforms looked like until they left the field and went into the clubhouse for uh, after the first game. That's the first <laughs> time they they's the first time they saw their uniforms, and they didn't even know there was rumors about the name of the team. But they like there always are. There's always going to be leaks. It always sure. seems to leak out. Uh, they had heard rumors, and we kept denying it. So it was the rumors were confirmed when they saw your, their uniforms. So they didn't know for sure until they actually, you know, got to, to put their, put their uniforms on. Right. Do you, do you find that you have to explain this story about the canary in the coal mine? I mean, I, for me, the, obviously the police song jumped right into my head and I'm sitting here still, it's, you know, an earworm in my brain right now is the canary in the coal mine by the police. But is this, this practice, I actually researched it a little bit before we talked, this practice of, of, you know, sending canaries into coal mines is something that ended in like the late 90s. Like it actually was something that they were doing for a long time before they, you know, got sensors that were sensitive enough to actually, you know, tell you whether it was going to be dangerous to go down there. I'll be speaking with Jordan Bennett from the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum about that later. So that'll be fun. Do you find that you have to explain this per, this practice of using canaries and coal mines to, to people? Surely not in Charleston, but around, you know, other places? Well, I, I, I think we have to remind people in Charleston as well, because, uh, you know, there's a whole generation that, that may not be that familiar, the younger generation. So we, we uh, had a video uh, produced. And that's how we brought the team out on the second game of the doubleheader uh, to that video. And the video was about a 50 second video, uh, had some old black and white footage, footage of the canary and the coal mine. And we had a really uh, kind of a James Earl Jones type uh, voiceover. And it was really well received. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. Oh, that's why that's why we're the dirty, because a lot of people at first said, 
we don't want to, you know, West Virginia, you know, gets crapped on enough as a state. You mm-hmm. know, we don't want to be called dirty. We all are already people already think we're dirty. But what, when they saw the video, it all kind of kind of came together for them that this dirty bird is a hero. We're celebrating this dirty bird. We're not making fun of the dirty bird, this mm-hmm. canary. We are celebrating him as a hero. And I had so many people say, oh, now we get it. When we heard the rumor about the name, we really didn't think about the backstory. Now that we know the backstory, the name makes sense. And then they see the logo with the name and it all kind of resonated at once. So we can are continuing, Paul, to use that video to introduce our team onto the field every single game so far this year. I don't know whether we'll go the whole season with it, uh, but you know you have different fans here all the time. So we, we might go the whole season with it just to make sure that everybody is totally educated on the mindset and the reasoning why we went with the name Dirty Birds. And I think it has really helped uh, tell the story and I think it has helped merchandise sales. You and I, I'm sure, could talk for a long time about your philosophy, you know, and we could probably do a whole episode just on the work that you've done in minor league baseball. So, you know, we don't have time for that today on this on the Charleston Dirty Birds episode, but maybe we'll revisit that in the future. I do want to ask you just sort of a basic question about and, and this applies to the Dirty Birds, because I think it's something that you've done here as with your other teams. My the reason this podcast exists is because I love the connections that teams have to their local communities. And you've obviously explained the connection that the Dirty Birds have to Charleston, West Virginia. But the thing that has happened is that a lot of these teams with hyper local connections, hyper local stories for why they exist the way they exist have become national phenomena, right? Like the I mean, you mentioned the yard goats and the flying squirrels and the rubber ducks and, and all of these teams have you know, they have hyper local reasons for where their nicknames come from, but the brands themselves have really taken off on a national scale. I'm sure a lot of people buying Hartford Guard Goats gear don't understand the connection to the railroad industry, right? Like, so how do you explain that philosophy of creating a, a team name that is so hyper local and yet has such a national appeal? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, if you notice, Every one of those names is a two-part name. Mm-hmm. Every one of them. Rubber ducks, iron pigs, uh, yard goats, flying squirrels, trash pandas, dirty birds. Every one is two names. And for the most part, uh, and I guess maybe with the exception of pigs, maybe, for the most part, all those, are, all those animals or birds are kind of underdog type. You know, we're not doing lions and tigers and bears here, you know, or jaguars. Sure. We're doing a duck, a friendly little goat, a friendly little canary, a little flying squirrel, a raccoon, uh, which is the trash panda. Um, and and you know, a lot of people see a, a pig is a pretty passive animal. So we're, we're taking these passive animals, but we're making them tough. And I think the juxtaposition between the animal and, and making them tough. Everybody likes a, an underdog. You know, I think everybody roots for the underdog. And I think these, these names and these logos in and of themselves are kind of celebrating the underdog, which is minor league baseball. And I, so I think it, it, they all kind of fit minor league baseball and people want to, you know, be the, 
they want they want to sell it uh, the, the poor uh, we made this this innocent little duck we made him into a, a fierce rubber duck if you see the logo oh yeah uh, and and with the yard goats the yard goat was a an engine and a rail yard and the New York, New Haven, Hartford Railroad way back in the early 1900s. And it would move the, the train and put the train on the right track for the next day of business. That's what the yard, that was a nickname for the yard goat. So, so it was a railroad industry. Then I took the, the, the script that was used for the New York, New Haven, Hartford Railroad. And that became the script for the, the yard, goat, yard goat's name. So that tied in the yard goat's name to the to the industry to the um, train industry railroad industry and then i came up with the narrative that the yard goats are like that engine in the rail yard putting putting the the uh, major league team using the minor league team to be put on the right track for the major league team so you kind of i kind of backed into that that narrative and it all of a sudden it made sense to a lot of people. Now we get why they're the yard goats. Mm -hmm. In reality, the first thing that attracted us to the yard goats was just the name being so cool and unique sounding without me even knowing when, when I first saw it appear in the uh, name, the team contest, I had no idea what a yard goat was. I just liked it. And other people in the organization liked it because we thought it was a really different and cool and everybody likes goats. So, um, then when we found out exactly what it was, then we built the story around that. And that's how Yard Goats came about. Sure. Uh, Fly, Flying Squirrels was, a, was a, uh, a, a rare breed in the state of Virginia. Uh, the Iron Pigs was pig iron. The steel industry, Bethlehem Steel, flipped to make iron pigs. Rubber Ducks was, that was, that was my uh, general manager, Jim Fander. I'll give hats off to Jim. We were trying to come up with a name, and, and Jim said to me, well, we play in a stadium, Canal Park on a canal, and we play in the Rubber City, Goodyear Rubber, Goodrich, Firestone. He's there, he's there what do you get when, you, when you're, you play on a canal with water, and we're in the Rubber City? And I looked at him, and I go, Rubber Ducks. He goes, exactly. <laughs> I go, that's going to be our name, the Rubber Ducks. <laughs> And, uh, and that's how we became the rubber duck. So sometimes it, sometimes it, it's a lot longer process. Sometimes it just hits you and you just feels right and you go with it. Well, so I have to tell you that, you know, I've been doing this, this podcast, I've been writing about these logos since 2014, but I've been doing this podcast since December of last year. This episode that we're recording right now is episode 34. The next episode is uh, with the Akron Rubber Ducks. And I'm speaking with both Jim Fander and Jason Klein uh, for that episode. So that's coming up next on uh, episode 35. But I will also uh, tell you that if just, just looking back at the list here, episode 10 was on the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Episode 13 was on the Richmond Flying Squirrels. Episode 20 was on the Hartford Yard Goats. And episode 24 was on the Rocket City Trash Pandas. So, <laughs> so yeah. you can yeah. see those names. I mean- the, those names and the stories that they have and the connections to the local communities are things that have appealed to me for sure. And so it's a reason that, you know, I've, I have wanted to tell these stories just before I let you go here, Chuck, uh, you know, thanks so much for taking the time. And I know we diverged from the, the dirty birds, but as I said, there's so many stories that, that I'm sure you have to tell and that we could talk about that would be of interest 
to listeners of this podcast. But uh, just to circle back here, are there is, is there anything else about the the Dirty Birds brand? I'm going to talk to Caroline next about the you know the individual logos and and the work that she did. But is there anything else about the brand itself that that you feel like we should share with listeners of this podcast? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, and I think a lot of people were surprised. <clears throat> Although it was called the Dirty Birds, we went with vibrant colors. Mm. We went with bright blue, bright orange, yellow, of course, for the canary. And, and we had, if the, you look at the logo very carefully, then there's a little bit of dust uh, around the edges. But we really wanted to get away from the, the black and yellow of, of West Virginia power. So we didn't want just, and we didn't want just dark, dark colors. So I think everybody was a little surprised at how, how kind of vibrant our colors were. And I was also concentrating on, and, and I talked to Caroline about this. I wanted a symmetrical logo that we, when you do a symmetrical logo, you could morph the logo into like three or four different logos. So it, we have the full logo, then we have the, the full logo with the word mark on it. Then we remove the word mark and we have the, the full body. And then we move the, remove the body and we have just the head with the helmet. And then we can remove the face and the helmet and we have just the the headlamp which has a subtle c in it for charleston so we get four logos out of that the one master primary logo yeah well and that's that's really i mean that's a fun part of this brand though the way all those those logos work together and and that i will look forward to speaking with caroline about that chuck thank you so much for for coming on and having this great conversation with me i really appreciate it where can people find you on social media they won't. I'm very, <laughs> I, I am not a social media guy, believe it, believe it or not. Uh, That's all right. I have, I have Paul, I, I keep myself busy enough with texts and emails and phone calls that I wouldn't have time to do justice on social media. So I okay. let my, I let my great employees that are very uh, great at social media do all that for me. Well, we'll just, we'll just put your phone number in the show notes and anyone yes. who wants to reach you can just text you. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding we're not doing that no, no please don't all right thank you, Paul. chuck thank you so much i appreciate your time right. okay bye-bye all right welcome back everyone very happy to be joined for the first time on baseball by design by you know her as caroline jetty but now her last name is Bukas, Caroline Bukas, as of August. But you can find Caroline online, and you've heard me talk about her on previous episodes, especially the Hartford Yard Goats episode, as Caroline Jetty. So, Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Paul. Happy to be here. Caroline, first of all, I, have to, I just want to say right up front, I'm a fan of your work, and I love, I love what you did with the, the Yard Goats, the steamed cheeseburgers logo with the yard goats is one of my favorite alternate brands out there. So that one's, that one's really fun. And not just because of the connection to the Simpsons and principal Skinner and all that, but you, <laughs> you created the entire brand for the Charleston dirty birds. And this has been a really well-received brand. It's been really fun. And I think, you know, since you've done some work in minor league baseball, but there's, you know, there's obviously, you know, huge firms out there doing huge work with lots of teams and whatnot. Well, can you tell me sort of what that process was for you to create a brand for a team when it's relatively new is sort of in your portfolio. Absolutely. So, you know, I started my career in minor league baseball through interning at uh, different teams across the country. And I would say that's where I really started learning about the brands. And it was while I was pursuing my degree in graphic design. So um, I worked with the um, 
Mahoning Valley Scrappers, the Winston-Salem Dash, and the Buffalo Bisons before starting full-time at the Hartford Yard Goats, where I developed the uh, steamed cheeseburger logo. Um, so I would say that's really where I started uh, learning about brands and how to build brands. But you're right, this was my first, um, you know, full team brand, which was very different from creating those theme night brands. Although they do help, you know, learn how to develop the full logo and a hat design and then the jersey design and thinking about all of those things. This was different because you had to think about just more, you know, it's, it's just on a different level. It's just, um, just more. And so, uh, you know, I received the call from Chuck. So thank you to Chuck. I met him through my time at the Hartford Yard Goats and I've worked with a couple of his, his teams as well, such as the uh, New Hampshire Fisher Cats too. So um, I was very excited to get the call and uh, you know, started with a normal session as I would with, uh, you know, any theme team too. Um, we just start, you know, I'm not involved as much in the naming portion of it. He comes to me with a name or a couple names and we'll start there and I'll do a couple sketches and send them back. And um, it was great. So, you know, we just dove right into it and it kind of worked organically. Um, you know, there were different pieces and some even different spellings, you know, is it one word or two words? I don't mm -hmm. know if Chuck mentioned exploring like a D instead of a T. Um, there was a lot of, you know, exploration. So it was really fun to be involved from the ground level on that. This, this is the first I'm hearing about the D instead of the T. So that that's interesting. And I wonder if even like, cause you know, you hear dirty birds and you think immediately of the Atlanta Falcons. And so you wonder, you know, was that maybe a trademark or a copyright thing? And I don't know. It's, it's the first I've heard of the D instead of the D. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of phases on this one. It was fun. Awesome. Well, so and we're going to talk about the Dirty Birds here in a minute, but you mentioned the the Fisher Cats. Uh, you've done two identities for the Spanish language Copa de la Diversión program. You did the Gatos Feroces for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. And then you did, uh, obviously, the, the Hartford Yard Goats Copa brand as well, the Chivos so, so is that a different process creating creating a, a Copa brand that is intentionally for you know has a a, a different market yes. than than a primary brand or, or just a regular alternate brand? Yes, absolutely. the uh, The Copa brands are really interesting and something that I love because um, you know working in baseball, there's so many of the players that don't speak English and or are learning English. You know, depending on where they're at in their career, I remember. When I was at the Mahoning Valley Scrappers, they would host Spanish classes a couple times, or sorry, not Spanish classes, English <laughs> classes a few times a week for the Spanish speaking players because they were, you know, low A, single A, and they were, you know, new to the States. And um, so I loved that they were bringing baseball back to that language and honoring the players on the field as well as the communities, um, you know throughout all of the country. I thought that was really cool. And so when we approach those logos though, you really wanna be careful with how you're presenting them and make sure that it's um, honoring the right community. And there's a lot of different cultures within, you know, that could be Spanish speaking. So, sure. um, you know, it just took a lot of research to figure out what was specific to that community. So what was specific in Hartford versus what was specific in uh, New Hampshire, in Manchester, um, and making sure we were speaking to that crowd appropriately and honoring their history. Sure, sure. Well, that's great. Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm sure that that's a, there's a lot of background that needs to be gleaned before you can even start the design process. So that's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's a, I love that, uh, that program within minor league baseball though, because it's produced, first of all, so many great logos. And second of all, really does have this, 
this expansive reach to 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 build the audience of of minor league baseball. So I think that program has been great great for the sport. I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about the Charleston Dirty Birds here. It's uh, you know we've only been talking for what like seven minutes and we're we're finally getting to the to the Dirty Birds here. <laughs> the suite of logos is fun, right? Because it's 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 a it's not you know it's not ten logos like you see sometimes with some of these teams put out these sort of huge suites, but the logos you know really work well together. So you've got this adorable like he's like he's this little guy, but he's got this menacing look on his face, and so so he's adorable. You've got the for the for you know the the fan who doesn't necessarily want the adorable cartoon character, you've got the the headlamp Charleston C, which is a, a a clever incorporation of a letter form into a into an image, and then you have the sort of feathery typeface that you came up with the Dirty Bird, the the custom font that you came up with here for Dirty Birds, which has the sort of feathery ends on it. So, I have uh, you know just I'd love to hear your take on sort of all three of those. And I, am I missing anything else from the this? This identity here, I think that was the, the main parts of it, right? Nope, that's it. Okay. Along so, with the primary logo, of course. <laughs> of course, w- with all of those things coming together, right? So so let's talk about the character. What was what were the considerations in, in developing the, the Dirty Tweety here? Oh, absolutely. You know, so um, the history of the logo, which I'm sure Chuck spoke to, is the canary bird. And so, mm-hmm. of course, I start there because it's the canary with the mines. So we didn't have a ton of flexibility, even though the name is Dirty Birds. With the history of it, it needed to be a canary or somewhat resemble a canary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that's where, of course, the yellow came from. But when I looked up a canary bird, because I'm just not familiar with birds, <laughs> um, it had a, you know, it was very round. I felt like it was very almost borderline fat um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a very small beak. And so that to me was a bit of a challenge because it looked like a very delicate bird almost or like a bloated but delicate bird which is hard to make look you know somewhat intimidating <laughs> or masculine uh in a baseball sports logo yeah. um so that was kind of where we started but then in addition to that it was a lot about the direction that the bird was flying that was probably the first few months of the development of the logo was just is it flying down is it flying towards you is it flying sideways up Um, so there was a lot of focus on that, uh, which obviously we settled on kind of up and out and towards you. Um, and that really came from the decision was, you know, we came very close to having the bird flying down and, uh, we felt like that was going towards the mine versus this was when the bird was returning from it. Mm. And so that was kind of the overall thought and approach to it and why we settled on this one. Um, as well as you could get more of that, you know, roundness of the bird if it was coming towards you as well which was kind of cool um so from there in the primary logo we obviously have the full um the cage is incorporated into the primary logo and that was also important with the bird the to be named bird (laughs) (laughs) um had the bars bending out as if it was you know escaping almost um and so as you did call out, uh, which is something that I do like to do in most, if not all of my work, if I can, is incorporating the letters of the team into uh, the, the mark. And mm-hmm. so in this one, in the helmet, I incorporated the C for Charleston. But I also, in the secondary logo, which is the full body of the bird without the word mark, um, I tried to incorporate West Virginia WV into the tail. Um, nice. As a nod to the West Virginia power, because that is obviously what we were coming from. Um, 
which was something that I started from the beginning. So in any direction that that bird was flying, I had the WV in the tail, which was something that uh, I remember the team being pretty excited about from the beginning. So that was a fun one too. Um, but That's yeah. a great detail. And I love, so I love that you looked up you know, that you actually looked up canaries. I mean, obviously that's a pretty basic step in this process, right? But it's it's funny to think about, I mean, there was an episode of this podcast um, not too long ago on the Idaho Falls chuckers and right, like, and the chucker is just like this fat little round game bird, right? And so the question <laughs> is, how do we, you know, how do we make this, you know, a more, a more serious sort of menacing logo? And I think that sort of combination of like this cute character, but with like the the menacing face, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, almost like the El Paso Chihuahuas, right? Like this little animal that thinks that it's tougher than it is, you know? So I think that's a really fun sort of way to reach your destination in terms of designing a logo like this. I, I really think that that's a fun thing about, about this logo. Exactly. <laughs> it, it reminds me too of, uh, there was an episode that we did on the Portland Sea Dogs and the Portland Sea Dogs are based on harbor seals and their logo has ears and harbor seals don't have ears. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's, so there's a certain amount of creative license in these logos, right? But there's also a value in sort of going back and researching the 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 animal itself. Yeah, so. no, and I think um, something that I always love, just going back to what you're saying about the menacing face, is there's for me at least there's always a big decision of do we go menacing or do we go smiling? And I think mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with the animal that you're starting with or the character you're starting with from the beginning. Because sometimes if you're starting with a somewhat scary or not approachable thing or object or animal, then it benefits you to go with a smiling face versus if you're starting with a friendly, delicate looking bird, then you might want to go the more menacing direction. Right, right. So that's so he's wearing his he's got his you know mining helmet on and he's got the headlamp and we referenced that it's got the the C incorporated into the the headlamp. And I think, you know, I think there's always wisdom in having one mark in there for you know, there's always going to be grumpy people who don't want the cute cartoon character. I happen to love the cute cartoon characters. I have a lot of cute ca uh, cartoon characters on the hats behind me here. But the Headlamp C logo, I think it's, you know, it's clearly a letter C, but it's sort of a nuanced design thing to incorporate the type into the image like that. You said that the team loved that, which of course they did. So can you tell me about sort of developing that? Sure. So the Headlamp C for me, um, you know, I've, I've tried to do this with a few teams. Sometimes they go for it. Sometimes they don't, which, you know, either way is fine with me. Um, but for this one, I thought it was fun because, you know, obviously the mining cap is a big part of the logo. It's the miner. It has the headlamp on it. And although I did incorporate the letter C into it, it was also just, it seemed like an obvious tie of, you know, the character is wearing this mining cap. Why can't the people wear it as well? Um, so the hat is almost supposed to be a play on you know you've got that same color blue and that they're kind of wearing their own baseball miners cap even though it's a baseball cap um but that was kind of the fun play on it i think i have seen that hat out there too that it is a fun one it looks like you're like heading into the mine so <laughs> exactly um and so the the last thing i mean obviously you know you mentioned the primary logo that has all these elements you've got the bird you've got the the headlamp and then there's the the typeface you know typography is its own I mean, graphic design, graphic, you know, illustration, graphic arts is very different from typography, graphic design, like information design. So developing fonts is its own special weird challenge for designers. Can you tell me about and this one? And the reason I bring that up in this one is because not every font is going to be super expressive illustratively. I hope that makes sense, right? Like sometimes yes. fonts are sort of 
Well, I'm sure it makes sense for you because <laughs> this is what you do. But sometimes fonts are more sort of utilitarian and then sometimes they're actually part of the illustration. And so in this case, very clearly the, you know, the, the, the typeface itself is, this is another thing. We could have a whole episode on the difference between a typeface and a font. And I just keep using them inter interchangeably. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but can you tell me about the sort of process of incorporating the illustrative style of the font into the logo itself? Absolutely. Um, so I was actually looking back at some versions of this logo as we started the type exploration, because my process personally is to always start with the character. Um, and so with this one, I was looking back and it was funny to see one of my very first versions of it was actually a more Western font that was much more block and again, honoring those, the mines in West Virginia and that kind of style. And then we obviously transitioned to this direction. And so for this one, for me, you know, the name is Dirty Birds. And so it's really important um, in all of my work to ma make sure the type blends with the character. Um, I always like to view it as one full mark, which of course anyone does. Um, but it, it it's always a challenge. Like once, you, once the character is developed, once you're set on it, finding the typeface that just clicks with the uh, character is challenging. And um, obviously, when I say finding, I mean, designing it, <laughs> but kind of going finding that style, I always, you know, start with some pre existing fonts to figure out, like, does it work with that more block font? Does it need to be more, um, you know, sketched like this one? So um, where we ended up on this was I really liked the idea of a more brushed hand drawn font style, um, which is where this landed. And that was for two reasons. It was part one was the dirty birds, like the word dirty, like it seemed, it felt natural to have that more handwritten brushed rough font style. Mm -hmm. um, but then on the other hand, making it more cartoonish and rounding out those edges and giving those, like, I think I tried to do like three to four brush strokes at the end of each one, rather than it being this like rough distressed texture. And um, that really connected back to the bird and that feathery texture, as you mentioned at the beginning of this call. I think people can look at it and feel that it, you know, looks a little grungy, but at the same time also feels almost bird-like, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, one of my just favorite things about graphic design and logo design is this interaction of type and image, right? And that's just, I just, I just... It's, I love when they come together in such a, a compelling way. And I think that these elements also work so well together. So that's, I think, one of the reasons this logo has been so well received. And the, the adorable look on Dirty Tweety's face there is just, you know, just, I, you know, absolutely love that. Well, so Caroline, I obviously I've kept you longer than I told you I was going to. I apologize for that. Uh, so I appreciate you taking all this time with me this morning. One last question. I mean, with the success that that your Copa brands have had and then the steamed cheeseburgers and now how well this this Dirty Birds uh, logo has been received, are, do you, is there steam picking up with the work that you're doing in minor league baseball? Or are we going to see other uh, Caroline Jetty slash Caroline Bucas brands out there? You will. I just finished another uh, theme brand, not a full team, but um, I did just finish another theme brand with the Hartford Yard Goats for 2023. So uh, there will be more coming. Obviously, that's the worst part is having to wait and not show anybody for, <laughs> for too long. Right. Um, right. But yeah, so you'll you'll be seeing more of my work in 2023. Fantastic. So we'll get to talk again then. Where can people find you uh, online? And uh, we've referenced your website, which is carolinejetty.com. And Jetty is J-E-T-T-E. Uh, but where else can people find you on the socials and all that? 
Absolutely. Well, you can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, of course, name change. So on LinkedIn, I'm Caroline Bukas. Um, but yeah, my website and my LinkedIn are probably the best two ways to contact me. Awesome. Well, Caroline, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun and can't wait to see more work down the road. Thank you so much, Paul. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very happy to be joined right now from the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum in Leadville, Colorado. So my neighbor, not too far away, just a couple hours from Fort Collins here, Jordan Bennett is the curator of this very cool museum. Jordan, thank you for, for being here. Thank you for having me today. Oh gosh, no, I'm super excited about it. Obviously, if people haven't figured this out already, I have asked you to come on because I figured who better than the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum to know about the use of canaries in coal mines. So we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, but could I just just ask you just sort of how were canaries used in the coal mining industry? Sure, so coal or canaries were used as a safety precaution. Um, so historically coal miners faced dangers like cave-ins, fires, explosions, and more while working underground. Um, many of these dangers produce carbon monoxide, which is a colorless, odorless gas that replaces oxygen. Um, and the scientific part of it is that it replaces oxygen in your bloodstream, which prevents oxygen from reaching your organs and tissues, which is necessary for breathing and surviving. First symptoms of carbon monoxide include mild headaches and dizziness, which can then lead to shortness of breath, nausea, loss of consciousness, and then even death in extreme circumstances. Um, so canaries are very useful because they are what are considered like a sentinel species. It's a species of animals that's used to help detect risks to humans um, as like a first indicator. So these uh, canaries were used to help alert the miners that there was dangerous ox or dangerous carbon monoxide in the air. So those symptoms that you described sound a lot like elevation uh, sickness as well, which you're up in Leadville, Colorado, which is at like 10,000 feet of elevation. If I remember, it's the highest incorporated town in the United States is, is Leadville, like way the heck up there. So those those sound familiar to me, those those symptoms, because I, you know, having been up there before, I've, I've experienced that sort of elevation sickness. The, the, the practice of using canaries in coal mines went on for a, a long time. Can you talk about sort of when it started? Sure. Um, to go back to your first comment, though, yes, Leadville is the highest incorporated city in America. Um, we're a lot smaller than we used to be. Back in the gold rush days, we had 30,000 people, and that numbers debatably can be higher as well. We've got about 3,000 people today, um, but those carbon monoxide poisoning symptoms are very similar to elevation sickness. So those are good things to be aware of when you're coming up to Leadville. Um, because the elevation can definitely kick your butt. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Probably not a problem in Charleston, West Virginia, I don't think, where the dirty yeah. place is. Less of an issue for them than for us here in Colorado. Yes, a bit of a difference. But yeah. to go back to your other question, so the use of canaries in mines is credited to a man named John Scott Haldane. I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, he was a physician and physiologist, which is like the study of human uh, living organisms and bodily functions. Um, he was also notably known for his self-experimentation, which is highly controversial these days. Yeah. Um, he researched the impacts of mine disasters with special focus on the toxic gases that killed miners. So in his research process, he realized that canaries are actually uh, 
really good species to be put in mines because of their intake of oxygen. And this started occurring back in the 1890s, roughly, in coal mines. Um, so canaries were both seen as like a safety necessity in the mines, but then also a pet as pets because of their camaraderie that they would provide the miners while working on the ground. Um, so the canaries first started being used in the mines in the 1980s, or I'm sorry, 1890s. <laughs> um, and they were originally put in like little wooden cages that look almost like a baby crib type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of their sentimental use and the fact that the coal miners didn't want to have to keep purchasing more canaries if they were to die during in the mines, um, they ended up starting to put them in these little uh, boxes that are roughly the size of a gap or a lunchbox that had holes in it. And when the canaries would stop singing or fall over because of the increased carbon monoxide level, they were able to like close the doors of this lunchbox type setup and turn on a small oxygen tank to help revive them. So they were very sentimental towards these birds as well. Well, that's adorable. That actually makes me feel a lot better about this because it was like, you know, you see the, and, and you saw the logo for the team itself, right? Like it's this adorable, fierce little bird sort of poking his head through like the, like the Tweety Bird style, you know, mm-hmm. cage, right? The, the bird cage. So I'm, I'm glad to know that the miners were looking after these, uh, these birds in some way there. So that, that's pretty fun. So are, I have to ask you, are you a baseball fan? I am a baseball fan. I'm from Cleveland. So we're the guardians now. You're the guardians now. That's mm-hmm. okay. That's great. I was in Cleveland not too long ago and I went to a Lake County captain's game. Oh, they're uh, great as well. Yeah, that was, that was really fun. So do you have a sense for like, okay, if you're looking at a canary, right? Like he's this little tiny guy. Do you have a sense for like how he might be used on a baseball team? So I was trying to think about that. And like in conjunction with the Charleston, West Virginia coal mining industry, I kind of came up with a couple different reasons why I think a canary would be a good mascot. Um, One I was thinking is because they were a safety precaution and because historically coal mining was the top in the top 10 most dangerous fields you could be in. The fact that these canaries were essential to coal mining, the the coal mining profession um, helped a lot in ensuring safety. Um, Another reason I thought they'd be a good mascot is because they did boost the morale for miners. So maybe the baseball team needs a good morale boosting mascot type of thing. Uh Um, And then the other option I was thinking about is that many canaries died while working in these mines. So I thought it could be a an appropriate way to pay homage to their sacrifice to keeping those miners safe while they supplied the coal or the country with the coal that they needed. That is, that is some really deep insight there, right there. I I like that a lot. I like the research that you did to come up with that. And I'm pretty sure I sprung that question on you because I was looking at the the questions I sent in advance and I don't think that was in there. So uh. (laughs) it wasn't, but it was one I was thinking about because I was like, there's got to be a really cool reason why. And I tried to even do a little bit research of why they would choose the canary and I wasn't finding anything super concrete. So I was like, let's try to find some options as to why this would work. (laughs) Well, I hope, I hope Chuck Domino and Caroline Bucas are listening to this. This episode here because uh, I think they could use your your insight for because we've talked we've talked already on this episode about the reasons for the canary as the mascot and that's you know some even further depth there so I appreciate that the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum like I said it's in Leadville Colorado just a couple hours uh, west of Denver and way up there in the Rockies like way up high and in, in this unbelievable setting right in the shadow of Mount Elbert which is the tallest mountain in Colorado by like. 10 feet just it's like 10 feet higher than Mount Massive which is right there next to it so can you tell me about you know if I'm a visitor to the to the Leadville area and I'm way up there in the Rockies and I want to visit the the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum what is my experience going to be what is what do I what am I learning at the museum 
Sure. So, well, originally the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum, we opened to the public in 1987. Um, and the original structure of the museum was actually the original high school that was built back in 1899. So when you look at some old pictures of Leadville, you can see the main building of the high school, which is now the museum, which is really cool to see. Um, we have over 25,000 square feet of exhibit space. Um, we've got a wide variety of topics, including um, exhibits on our Climax molybdenum exhibit, um, which molybdenum is the only mineral that's consistently mined in Leadville today. Um, but molybdenum statistically is in and on you, whether it's in your watch, on your braces, in the building steel that's around you because it's used as a steel hardener. Um, we also have a gold room exhibit, which is really interesting, and it talks about the history of the gold rush starting. Um, and we also have a really nice gold nugget in our exhibit from Leadville's Little Johnny Mine. So it's our biggest piece of gold we've got. It's almost two pounds, which is really cool. Um, and then our newest temporary exhibit is called Pioneering the Field Women in Mining, and that highlights the stories of 15 historical and contemporary women and their contributions to the necessary field of mining. Um, just because we've recognized that traditionally women's contributions to the field have been overlooked. We wanted to give some due diligence to these women. Um, and that exhibit will be open until February 2023. So if you ever get the chance, please come up and look at it. <laughs> um, and then we also actually, among many others, have another exhibit about lighting in mines. And in that, we actually talk very briefly about um, how canaries were used in mines. And so we have a couple of historical examples of those canary cages that were used. Um, and that way we can show the public that they were used for a, almost 100 years actually in the mines. Um, we also own another structure at our in town called the Matchless Mine and Baby Doe's Cabin. So we offer tours there daily during the summer months and our tour guides are up, up there are fantastic. Um, so I highly recommend them. Plus it's the only mine tour you can get in Leadville. And while you can't go underground for it just because of safety precautions, you do get to go inside a couple of the standing structures, which is really nice. And a lot of the artifacts are either up of Baby Doe's or of her um, time period, which is really interesting. That is super cool. I've heard from people who live in the area that that the museum is absolutely spectacular. And so it's it's embarrassing that I have lived in Colorado so long and not been there yet. So I'm going to have to come up there. I'll, I will bring a, a Cleveland Guardians helmet Sunday with me so that you can, you know, the, there's a space for it on your shelf. I see it back there. So, <laughs> uh, so Jordan, this has been spectacular. Where can people find the museum on, on social media or online? So we've got a Facebook page. If you look up National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum, and then our website is miningholloffame.org. Um, and you can find information there about our, you can buy tour tickets up there. Um, you can get more interesting facts about our exhibits we have here at the museum and at the Matchless Mine. If you join our Facebook page, um, you can see our posts that we make about different artifacts or different events that we're hosting. So I recommend you checking it out. That is awesome. Jordan, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun and I look forward to visiting you in the museum. And thanks so much for, for all the prep work that you did for this and for uh, talking to us about Canaries and the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. And I look forward to that Cleveland Guardians ice cream hat. <laughs> it's on its way, I promise. <laughs> I did, I did tell a putty cat.